In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Welcome to Money Tales. Cami here. In today's episode, our guest, Paula Pretlow, tells us about her beginnings as a poor black girl in Oklahoma City. Her mom pushes her and her siblings, and from that, gives her the gift of confidence. Her mom's huge decision was placing Paula and her siblings in a desegregated school with the edict that they will excel. And that's exactly what Paula did. She grew from that poor black girl to a very financially successful woman. In the conversation, Paula shares what her relationship with money has been like over the journey of her life including her experience as the breadwinner of the family and ultimately as a single mom. Sandy here. Paula is a total rock star. She spent her entire career in finance and investment management, ultimately retiring as a senior VP at the Capital Group. In addition, Paula is a 2017 fellow of Stanford University's Distinguished Careers Institute. She co-teaches design thinking at Stanford's D School and she serves as a director and trustee on several corporate and philanthropic boards. Among other things, during this conversation, Paula talks about her divorce. This inspired today's financial insight where we explore an overview of the divorce process. First, here's our interview with Paula Pretlow. Paula Pretlow, welcome to Money Tales. We're so glad you're here with us. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you. We always start these conversations by asking our guests to give us a brief summary of your journey in life so far, focusing on two or three pivotal moments that have really helped shape the person that you are today. Wow, that's a long road given my age. (laughs) I'm thankful to have arrived at this moment. I think it's been a really interesting journey, not an easy journey, but one that I can sit here today as I look out amongst vineyards and horses and chickens and just beautiful, beautiful landscape. I am grateful for the journey. I was born and raised in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. When I tell people that or ask them to guess, it is rare that they guess and it is quite surprising when they hear that coming from me. I seem to have lost my accent somewhere along the way between Oklahoma City, Oklahoma and Northern California. Being born in Oklahoma, in the mid-50s as a black child, the second eldest of five. My parents divorced when I was quite young, and so we were raised by our mom. That said, I want to also emphasize that we had a very, very loving father. And although my parents couldn't get along being married, they got along fabulously well co-parenting the five of us. So I don't want to take anything away from my dad, but 
It was my mom who wiped the snotty noses at night and got us all up and rounded up and out to school in the morning. She was a hardworking mom. She worked for the federal government as a secretary. It was a low-level job, but a steady job that provided income and insurance. And so we never had to worry about those kinds of basics. I can tell you, being the child of a divorced mother back in those days, people were still married. There's still a divorce wasn't 50% in my neighborhood. So as always, I think we, or I, I will keep this to I, felt somewhat like an outsider, if I could say that. I was a geeky kid. I buried my head in books. I was a very shy child. And I think a geeky, shy child with a mother and father who emphasized education, education, education. Well, the geeky part was good. The shy part was, well, my mom tried to figure out ways to bring me out of that. In the fourth grade, I learned that there were stringed instrument lessons that were being offered to all children. I ran home excitedly. Mommy, mommy, I want to play the violin. My mother had been raised with classical voice. She's trained classical voice and cello. And so when she learned that, it was, of course. The problem was, who's going to pay for the rental of a violin and all of that good stuff? And family members chipped in. You asked for pivotal moments. Picking up the violin was a pivotal moment for me. And it became such an important part of my life and my journey as a child and continued uh, until I finished high school. I told my music teacher that I was not going to major in music. I had the passion, but I think real musicians not only have the passion, they have the sense that they have to do it. Well, I didn't have the sense that I had to do it, but my appreciation has continued. But that was a very pivotal moment for me because it did help me overcome my shyness. There was a measure of talent. My music teacher introduced me to her father, who was the best stringed instrument teacher in the state of Oklahoma. We couldn't afford private lessons, and he gave them to me for free. Not only me, but my sister as well, who played the viola. And so that introduction to how people can contribute to the growth of a child, how they can give back, has really stuck with me. But I also watched my mother, my own mother, and my grandmother, my grandmothers, do the same in community always giving back to those who had even less of what we had. So but this was huge to be given private lessons. So that weaves in a lot. It weaves in giving back. It weaves in how a geeky, shy girl got to play the violin, which helped her come out of her shyness through competitions that I was put into, competing for first chair, being in the junior symphony, blah, 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 blah. That was very pivotal as I thought on that question. Another very pivotal moment in my life was our mom deciding that her five black children in 1968 would voluntarily desegregate the Oklahoma City public schools. We had great educations in our segregated black schools. We had teachers who cared. We had teachers who pushed us. And of course, our mom and dad pushed us. Excellence was expected. And it's my belief that children like to live up to high expectations. But my mom saw the future. And she saw that the future was one not of us staying in 
segregated communities, but being at the forefront of change. And as I have reflected through my life on that huge decision, a black mother saying, you're going to be just fine. You're smart enough. You can compete and you will excel. She was setting me up to be able to go into rooms where I would be the only and know how to navigate those rooms, know how to compete in those rooms and know how to emerge from those rooms, leaving with more information and having contributed to whatever success was taking place in that room. Oh my gosh, Paula, that's amazing. It was huge. How were you feeling about it at the time? Well, you know what, (laughs) the way we all looked at it, and I'm laughing as I think about this, but it's true and it's very simple. We believed what our mother told us. She said we were going to be fine, so we were going to be fine. If that meant there were uh, hiccups and trips and arguments along the way, we knew that she would be right there at our side, and she showed up when she needed to, and you know what? She was right. We were successful. We excelled. We were at the top of our classes, and so mother was right. Even though there were incidents along the way, like in junior high school, a girl who was a really good friend in school, told me that, "Eh, I'm sorry, I can't invite you over with everybody else to my house. My dad is a member of the John Birch Society. He said we could be friends at school, though. Oh, my goodness, Paula. So we were friends at school, but I never went to her home. And you know what? Did that crush me? No. It made me aware of who the John Birch Society was and what they stood for. And that I was living amongst those kinds of people as well as more progressive people. I mean, it is Oklahoma after all. So that was another pivotal moment in my life. And then I would say the other pivotal moment was actually leaving Oklahoma. I announced when I was 12 years old and how I knew this, I can't tell you. I just did with education being the most important thing in our house, I was encouraged to think about where I was going to college and what I was going to major in. I had an aunt who lived in California, in Northern California. And I announced just, we always talked about college. I mean, I was born knowing that I was going to college. At the time, I thought probably in Oklahoma, but that changed. And at 12 years old, I announced that I would be leaving Oklahoma to go to college didn't know where, but I, I put Stanford on the list. And you know, when it was time to apply for college, I applied to colleges in Oklahoma, only as safety schools. Now, how I was going, we were going to pay for an elite private university, I didn't know, but my mother was never ever one to squash a dream. And she said, apply. And then we learned that there were these things called scholarships. Now, Was I encouraged by my counselors to apply to these elite schools like Harvard, Northwestern, Georgetown? No, I did the research on my own. Interesting. Of course, they wrote recommendations, but I was never brought into the office and said, you should apply to these schools. I did that on my own and with the encouragement of my family. And I applied early decision to many schools. It was a little different back then in the way that it was done. Northwestern came through first and with a full scholarship. And I said, yes. And off I went, sight unseen. Remember my mom and my brother and a cousin dropping me off on the stoop of my dorm, waving goodbye to them, and then asking myself, what have I done? What did I just do? (laughs) 
my gosh. I think I've given you a picture of my launching pad. Amazing. Yeah, wow. When you were applying to schools, you knew you wanted to go to college. Were you thinking beyond that? Were you thinking about careers and what you might want to do? Absolutely. I thought I was going to become a lawyer to save the world. And at Northwestern, I majored in political science. And it was a friend of a friend who mentioned that he was in business school and had been admitted a year early. And I thought, really? I like numbers. I can do that. It's just an extra year. And then I go to law school. So I applied to a program that no longer exists at Northwestern called a 3-2 program. So I did my undergraduate work in three years. I applied as a junior to enter business school my senior year. So the scary thing about that is I look back on it. Had I failed that first year of business school, it was also my senior year of university. (laughs) The pressure was on. So I went to business school in my senior year and I fell in love with business. And when they told me, no, I couldn't accelerate my law school experience, I said, that's okay. I'm really enjoying this business thing and took a class in investments and knew that that's where I wanted to be. Even though it was my hardest class, I knew that that's the direction I wanted to take. And so I went looking for a summer internship because I wasn't being recruited. And I went on informational interviews talking to banks, to their Fed funds desk, to their investment departments as information gathering. And then at the end of it, I'd ask, do you have any summer internships available? I asked the right bank. That was Continental Illinois National Bank. I was talking with the head of the bond department. He said, no, but we do have an internship program. Let me check and see if we can do that. I ended up in an internship on the Fed Funds desk, a fabulous experience between my first and second years of business school. And the neat thing about the end of that summer, I didn't know how I was going to pay for my second year of business school. My first year of business school was part of my four-year scholarship that I had received. I had been offered through the business school a scholarship that would require me to go and work for the government for two years that I had turned down. So I was flying with no knowledge about how a year two was going to be paid. I was called into HR at the end of the summer thinking, oh my goodness, what have I done? <laughs> and they offered me a full scholarship plus stipend for my last year of business school. Wow. I don't know if a theme is emerging yet. My theme is fearless, fearless. But it's also recognizing that there are opportunities that you don't even know about. That if you are fearless, that shy girl who was born would never have gone and sought out informational interviews that turned into a summer internship, that turned into an offer to pay my last year of business school. And oh, it went on. This was no strings attached. I had an offer from them after business school, but there were no strings attached to that scholarship and that stipend. And so there are opportunities that exist. We don't know where they're going to come from. And so having an open mind, but being that same giving person to others, I mean, it's a circle. You give and you receive. And that has been a story of my whole life. I love that. 
It's so great. Paula, may I pull you back? Because I want to take you back in time with your family. They sound amazing and they've created this amazing foundation. We heard about your mom working really, really hard. It sounds like she showed through example how to take care of your life and and whatnot. But did you actually have overt conversations about money, about saving? We absolutely had conversations about money. My mother was one of the most transparent people I've ever known. We didn't have money. And she wanted us to know how little we had, thereby letting us know how she had to budget and how we couldn't just go and say, I want. And that meant that we would get. We had to take turns getting shoes. We had to take turns getting clothes. In grade school, I had to wear the same dress to class two days in a row because I only had three. I had one pair of shoes. And, uh, but this is what my mom taught. What you buy should be the best so that it will last. So even though we didn't have a lot of money, she spent a lot of money on clothes that, and shoes that would last. Shoes weren't passed down, but clothes were, and they needed to be able to be worn by my sister behind me. We knew exactly how much money my mom made, and we knew what went out the door for everything that had to be paid for. So you're a quality investor. <laughs> I haven't always been a quality investor, but that's the idea. (laughs) (laughs) Paul, when you're off at Northwestern and you're enjoying the benefit of the scholarship, it sounds like you knew how to budget, how to live on that scholarship. I also had a work-study job. And let me tell you, that job paid, I'll never forget it, 90 cents an hour. Whoa. So I would get my little check. and. My mom and dad saved up. So I knew that I wouldn't be able to go home for Thanksgiving, but I was home for the winter break and the family would gather up enough money for a round trip ticket for me to come home. But my work study job at 90 cents, I didn't need much. I worked during the summers in high school and worked in the county clerk's office in Oklahoma City. And I knew I had that even after my first year of of college. And I would save that money. And I knew that in high school, that money had to take me through the year to buy gas and, you know, the occasional dress or shoes. And I went away with college with just that amount of money. And then my 90 cent work study job, I knew how to budget. And that work study job, there were things that were important to me, like art and ballet and symphony. So I would take that 90 cents an hour and save up so that Once a year, I could go to the symphony, I could go to the ballet, I could go into Chicago and take in a movie from time to time with friends. So yes, I did learn how to budget. And what was it like for you to be at an elite private university with a lot of people who came from different backgrounds than you and were in very different financial situations? Well, those are the same people my mother put me in school with in Oklahoma City. They were the very same people. I already knew that I could compete academically. I knew I didn't have the money to compete financially. And so, and I understand why you asked that question, because I did watch a lot of my friends who came from backgrounds similar to mine, but did not have the experience of having been in environments with rich white people. Let me just say it. 
So I didn't have to make that adjustment. I had to make the adjustment to being away from home and being in some larger classrooms. But that took the first quarter. (laughs) (laughs) Different backgrounds I had already been exposed to. I will say, though, because I learned early how to navigate through different backgrounds, how to sit at a table with friends who flew to Europe for a week with their families, I knew how to do that. And I was fine with that. I was under no illusion that I'd be flying off to Europe with them. But I will describe a tension that I had with, and and this still exists today, I hear it from students who walk the line between having black friends, having a variety of friends. There was pressure from some of my black friends to, why aren't you having dinner with us? Why are you sitting at that table? It's very cool getting back to your idea of the cycle of your life, how interconnected everything really has been. It's almost as if your mom really did see the way and she was preparing you for everything. So tell us, Paula, what happened after college? What did you do? I came out of business school as a newly minted MBA at age 22. I got married in my sophomore year of college. And my now ex-husband and I were free to go anywhere we wanted after business school. He was also a Northwestern undergrad and had done some work in business school, had not completed his degree, but we decided to leave Chicago. And I had numerous offers. I had like eight offers across the country and we chose to come to California. We came, we saw, we liked, and we realized that jobs or no jobs, we were coming here. Well, I was recruited by Wells Fargo Bank. It was my first job out of business school in the corporate bank. And I called on Fortune 500 companies on the East Coast. Back then, way back then, Wells Fargo was considered a regional bank, not the powerhouse that it is today. That was my first job in money, (laughs) in financial services. So I did realize that dream of going into financial services. I wanted to go to work on Wall Street, be upfront with this. I wanted to go to work on a sales and trading desk because that was the experience I had in my internship between first and second years of business school. I could not get an investment bank to hire me for sales and trading. In fact, I was told, oh, MBAs don't do that. I go into banking and M&A. So I thought, you know, I'm only 22. I'm going to go and get a background in credit and in commercial and corporate banking. And so I accepted the position at Wells Fargo Bank. And that's what got me started. I did eventually realize my dream of working on Wall Street. It was just that seed in the back of my head. I had to do it. And I got it out of my system in the course of two years. I did, as part of my career, end up working for CS First Boston on the bond desk. And I was a mortgage specialist and also specialized in whole loan. So I did have that experience decided that it was not the way I wanted to have a long and fruitful career. So I went to the other side of the business, the other side of the business being the investment management end of the business. And that's where I've spent the bulk of my career and loved, loved, loved the experience and the industry. I will not say it was always easy. It wasn't. There were some, you know, (laughs) not great experiences for all the reasons that don't need to be articulated here, you know, having to do with being a woman, being a black woman, being a black woman in the industry in the early 80s, mid 80s, it was not always easy, especially those couple of years on Wall Street. 
I share some of that experience, maybe not in the 80s, but close enough. It's an interesting place for women to be, but it's changing. And I'm really happy to see that. And I'm here to champion it because it's a great opportunity, great career. Absolutely. I wouldn't trade the industry that I chose as my career for anything. In fact, I'm like, women is the place to be. (laughs) Paula, can I ask you, what's been a pivotal money decision you've had to make? I have thought about that question. And the best way for me to answer it is there are little steps along the way that add up to what the bigger outcome has been. There have been times where I have had to take a step back in order to see a better path forward. I've taken a lower salary because I thought the opportunity was better. I've made money decisions, and this is around taking positions and jobs. I have made mistakes in believing that the highest paying job was going to be the best one. And so realizing that that isn't true, I think we underestimate our own power and, in, and we shortchange ourselves by making short-term decisions. I've certainly been guilty of that. It's the small money decisions along the way. Some of them in the moment didn't seem so small, like making the decision during divorce, do we sell the house and split everything or am I going to buy him out? Well, I bought him out. That was huge. That turned into a great investment for me and my kids and I primary responsibility for my kids. I was not only the breadwinner and emotional support, so it was all on my shoulders. It would have been in the moment to sell the house, money in my pocket, but it wouldn't have been the right long-term decision to make. And it was hard at that point. Losing a dual income situation and going it alone, that was a big decision uh, to make. How did you reach that decision, Paula? Well, this is conversation just among us, right? (laughs) First of all, I realized I'm competitive with myself. Back then, I had more images of what other people would think of me. I have let go of that stuff. That is one of the benefits of age. But first of all, being a black mother, a single black mother of two kids, you know, had all of these negative connotations in my head. And therefore, to me, I had something to prove. Yeah, I might be a single black mother of two, but I'm going to be in this house in the suburbs. I am going to make sure my kids have all the benefits of a good life, but I'm going to do this on my own. And it was important as part of that, I'm going to do this to also be in my own home where I could raise my children. So it was hard in those first couple of years, and it was so right over the long term. And I remember getting to the end of the year, that first year, having to borrow $1,000 at the end of the year from my mom and waiting for my bonus to come in February and paying her back. That's how tight it was. Did you feel bad about asking for the loan? No, not at all. You know, with five kids out of the house and on their own, and my mom still having her government job and her house that she had bought, she was able to save money in her later years. And she had it to loan. And she said, you know, you don't know by now. My mom is a very, very giving person. And she knew I was good for it. She knew I would pay her back. 
must have felt great to ask and to give back, right? There's something beautiful about that. The fact that I had to borrow very open with my mother as she was with us growing up. So she knew what the situation was. And I said, I hate to ask you, but there was no hesitation on her part. Tell us about being a breadwinner mom during your marriage. What was that like? Well, I grew up with a breadwinner mom. So to me, that was just, that was normal. But Sandy, I think I've shared with you that I was also the primary breadwinner in the marriage. And I didn't think so much about it then because you do what you have to do. And, and I just happened to make more money in the marriage. And frankly, my then husband said it didn't matter. At the end of the day, it, it really did matter. And maybe this is just me, but I think it, it matters to many if not most men, I think it's the rare man who is okay with his partner, his wife being the primary breadwinner. It didn't bother me at all. I was proud back then. There was no separation of this is your pot of money. This is my pot of money. It was just, this is our pot of money. So there was no problem with that in my view. Then it became in a divorce, it becomes yours and mine. And then you know how it split down the middle. I was just happy that we went through mediation and came to a decision, keeping our children at the forefront of decisions, because I did talk to a lawyer who said, be nice, because I could have owed him alimony and child support, even though I had primary care. So being a breadwinner mom, it was what I grew up with. And I know through my experience the pressure that my mother must have felt for five kids. I felt it for two. I knew that what I was able to provide to them would determine where they might go to college, how they might go to college. I knew that it was all up to me. And it's a lot of pressure. I am so fortunate and I'm so happy. I loved my career. I had a good career. And so once I got past divorce recovery, as I call it, I knew that I had a path to a financially thriving, I won't even say stable, I had a path to a financially thriving life for myself and for my kids. And it gave me great joy and great pleasure to know that through my hard work, through the choices I made about my career, through the choices about how I performed in my career, that I could provide a very different life in terms of financial stability for me and for my kids. Money Tales is all about conversations about money. And when you shared this experience with your now ex-husband, this underlying tension, you being the primary breadwinner, tell us about the conversations you were having at that time. Were you having conversations? Were you not? The conversations we were having were, I'm so proud of you. Go ahead. I don't have any problem with this. We were saving together. We bought a house together. We were investing together. And I have to say at the time I got a divorce, my career trajectory was on the upswing. I often look back and say, thank goodness. It was not at the point it became post-divorce, we might be having a very different conversation. Even in that trajectory of upward momentum for me, 
the conversations were, that's great, go for it. And it came out in the divorce proceedings that no, it really, really was an issue for him. He didn't admit it until we were in divorce court. Did that surprise you? Yes, because I believed him. So it did surprise me. Money is not an easy topic. People aren't always on the same page with respect to money. I feel really, really fortunate that I've been able to make my money decisions by myself (laughs) Uh, uh, since it turns out I had to. Now, let me say, I would welcome... (laughs) I would welcome another man in my life. (laughs) But how wonderful that given the situation I found myself, which is unlike, and I say this out loud, unlike what most women go through when they are faced with divorce. Most women don't come out on the same end as I did. Most women aren't in a position when we take a look at the total, uh, take a look at women overall in our circumstances. I'm really fortunate. Paula, will you describe your current relationship with money? I think my relationship with money has always been a complicated one. And since it's just us talking, I'll tell you, I've gone to therapy to talk about it. It is complicated. As someone who grew up poor, one of the drivers through my career. And even now, I still feel seeds of this, this feeling, this fear. That's what it is, a fear of being poor again. And that has always been in the back of my head. I have this fear of ever being poor again, because I know what it's like. And so my relationship with money has been, and my career has been fueled by that fear. I think it's driven me in achieving the success that I've had. It's not all fear-based, but I have to admit that that has been part of it. I think I have a much healthier relationship with money. I am an investor. I'm a long-term investor. I have delegated authority for my investment portfolio for most of it to a professional. I keep out some for myself that if it doesn't work out, I can't blame anybody else. (laughs) But I still have a long-term view. I, I want to be able to spend and enjoy, save and feel safe, and know that when my time on this earth is done, there may still be a few assets for my children to divide between themselves. How would you define a healthy relationship? I think a healthy relationship with money is someone who just knows what they have, knows what they should say, know what's coming in, know what's going out. And if you're in the fortunate position, well, this doesn't matter what position. It doesn't really matter how much it is. It really matters what you do with it and how you feel about it. So we can take off whatever dollar amount it is. It's really being able to know what you can do, what you shouldn't do, and what you can't do. And being able to live and enjoy within that framework and be happy with it. If more comes in, pay yourself first 
and then go on about your business. Well said, really well said. Paul, you've had such an amazing life. You've done so many things. You've just been successful in so many different arenas. What do you most want to do that you haven't done yet? I love travel. I still haven't gone everywhere I want to go. Antarctica is on that list. I'd love to go back to Africa and explore more countries. I love Nepal. I love Israel. I love to travel. So I look forward to the day we can get back to that. I love adventure travel. So I like off the beaten track kind of travel. I've gotten to do it. So when you ask, what haven't I done? I want to do more of that. I'm fortunate in that there's something I want to do. I figure out a way to to do it. I'm really quite fulfilled. One of my dreams as that poor black girl in Oklahoma City growing up was to build a house, to build my own home from the ground up. And as I sit here and have this conversation with you, I'm fulfilling that dream. I can tell you that when I was a child, I used to dream, and this is the truth, I would have dreams about driving or going down a country road and seeing a picket fence on the side of the road, and that's where my house was. That's where my house is that I'm building. How does that feel? We're getting a sense of it from the tone of your voice, but say more about how it feels to be realizing that dream. Well, on any given day, I'll tell you the truth, because I'm intimately involved in the process, from the design of my house to the imagining it, to picking out hinges. I'm involved in every process. On any given day, I'm ready for it to be done. Uh, a little larger scheme of things. It's a dream come true. Literally, it's a dream come true. When I talk about being that poor black girl with geeky and shy, I would sit and imagine things. And this was a recurring dream of mine as a child that is coming true. Goosebumps of excitement. This is so thrilling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's one piece of money wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners that hasn't come up so far in our conversation? I said it a couple of minutes ago, but I'll repeat it. If I'm targeting an audience, I'm targeting young women or older women. doesn't matter. Pay yourself first. When you are saving is really important. Just get in the habit of saving. When you have money coming in, young girls, if it's from chores you're doing or whatever, or an allowance, pay yourself First, and what I mean by that is set it aside for savings before you do anything else and make that part of your life. And uh, that adds up. The power of compounding is real. If I could share another thing, because this is something I raised my kids with, and I'm happy to say that they live by it today. If you can't afford it, don't buy it. If you can't pay cash for it, don't buy it. I'm leaving out a car and a huge purchase, but if you can't pay cash, you don't need it. Those are two things that I would say. What's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? Well, I'm having these conversations with my two young people, my son and my daughter. My son is on his investing path and is really happy, happy with his investing path. My daughter, she pays herself first, but she has not created a portfolio that I think she should, but I can't tell her that. She has to do that herself. We can have the conversations and I can guide her and she has to take the action. That's a great question, Cammie, because these are conversations that are happening in real time for me right now and with my family. 
Good for you. Paula Pratlow, what a delightful conversation this has been. I'm so inspired by your ability to make your dreams come true. It's just thrilling to hear you talk about it and you give hope to all of us for fulfilling our own dreams. So thank you for this. Thank you for the opportunity to share. It's not often that we do talk about money and I admire the work that you're doing and getting people to do it and share their stories. So thank you so much for including me and asking me. Thanks, Paula. Sandy here with the Personal Finance Insight. During our conversation with Paula Pretlow, she talked to Cami and me about her divorce and a pivotal financial decision it triggered. Because divorce is tangled with financial considerations for couples who decide to dissolve their marriage, we're going to focus today's insight on an overview of the divorce process. First, we'll point out that divorce comes in many different styles and flavors. Some couples can amicably terminate the marriage and move on from it without a hitch. Other divorces are messy, drawn out, and painful experiences. Many divorces fall in between those two extremes. Some divorces can be handled between the couple, their attorneys, and other advisors in a collaborative, respectful way. Others benefit from the assistance of a neutral mediator who works with the couple and their attorneys to reach agreements. And still other divorces require litigation, relying on a judge to make final decisions. Regardless of how the marriage is unwound, both spouses go through a transition of identity from ending life as they knew it as married people to finding a new normal as now single. This transition can be a difficult journey for some people, and it can take a lot of time to complete, especially when long-lasting marriages end. Often this transition triggers different emotional responses, such as overwhelm, helplessness, combativeness, fatigue, and a variety of other feelings. Making important financial decisions with long-term implications while experiencing strong emotions can lead to regret later on. To avoid this regret, we strongly recommend that people going through divorce become hyper-self-aware of their emotional state and seek whatever support they need from family, friends, advisors, and therapists to help them navigate this period of life. When a couple decides to divorce, each party will typically hire their own family law attorney to guide and represent them through the process. Fit is really important here. Be sure to look for an attorney with a work and communication style that complements yours and with experience and expertise in divorce cases that are like your situation. More specifically, when evaluating attorneys, be sure to consider whether they've worked with clients who have similar family demographics as yours, have experience working with others that have financial resources that are in the ballpark of the size and nature of your family balance sheet, and have addressed any specific concerns you may have around child custody, publicity, or other matters. Once the attorneys are in place, they'll guide the couple through a process that meets the requirements of the state that the divorce is taking place in. From a high-level process perspective, the spouses will file for divorce and each will disclose to each other their assets, liabilities, earnings, and expenses. Next, negotiations begin to finalize several factors, including spousal support, which isn't always required child custody and support if there are younger children involved, and the division of all of the couple's marital property. When all agreements are reached, the divorce process is finalized and each former spouse is legally able to move on with their life. Let's go back to the support, custody, and property negotiations for a moment. The intensity and time period involved with the negotiations is often influenced by the cause for the divorce, how well the couple can communicate with each other during the divorce proceedings, the length of the marriage, whether the couple has young or adolescent children, the amount of each spouse's respective earnings, and the complexity of their balance sheet. Like other financial decisions we've discussed in past Money Tales Insights, 
we find that it's helpful for each spouse to keep their values and their goals front of mind during these discussions. These factors will allow each individual to advocate for outcomes that will best serve their children if they have any, plus their own expected post-divorce lifestyle, career plans, and needs. We hope this overview discussion has been helpful to listeners who are going through a divorce, are thinking about divorce, and or who know someone going through divorce. For more of our insights, please listen to the end of Other Money Tales podcast episodes or go to our blog Fathom at experient.com slash Fathom. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cammie Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.